We are in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to pick us up at verse 18 to get us a running start into what follows. Because I told you that we would cover this paragraph again after finishing it last week. So, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the, Christian, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Had interesting discussion last time about who was it was who subjected the creation, and about the nature of the uh, freedom from its bondage to decay, and how the redemption of human beings by Christ Jesus doesn't just help us; it in fact has an impact on all of creation. And how creation itself is personified here as longing with much longing for the revealing of the children of God. And, and the sufferings of this present time, the, the persecution that the church is going through, the struggle that the people of God are going through, witnessing to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being rejected by Jewish leadership, being rejected by Gentile political authorities, being rejected, and the fights within the community itself between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, the brethren of James, all of this suffering that is being generated because of the importance of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, this suffering is not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. We know that the whole creation, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning with the labor pains until now. Interesting mental image. Groaning, ready to give birth. Like a mother. Ready to give birth. Can't wait to get this baby out of me. Or like um, Bill Cosby's wife grabbing his lower lip and yelling, I want morphine. <laughs> we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And it's the now to noon. The immediate, this exact moment, the instant he is dictating this letter. That is how precise that phrase is. Not some general now, but the now. Right here, right now, this very instant. Which leaves you room to say, well, is it possible that he is not inclusive of the now, of right now? That we're reading this here? At St. Stephen United Methodist Church in Mesquite, Texas? On March the 19th, 2009? Central time? Is it possible that, that he doesn't mean this now? That we're reading this? 
It's a specific noun. Hmm. I think so. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Thank you for speaking up. It wasn't just a rhetorical question. Oh, oh, it, it, oh, okay. yeah. it was okay. not just Apparently a... We were going to get stuck there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a rhetorical question. My book says right up to the present. Right up to the present. That's really close to the idea. Right up to the present. Paul, writing then, says that. Now, I tend to agree that it means both Paul's then immediate now and our immediate now. Because in his context, he's talking about the importance of this revelation. And in point of fact, we're in no different of circumstance today than he was in the late 50s or early 60s AD when he's writing this letter. Jesus hasn't come yet. The church is still proclaiming the gospel amidst a great deal of opposition. It's important to continue to be true to the character and the life of Christ that, that we have been given to live within the body of Christ. It's important to continue to be true. Therefore, the now of then equates, is similar to, is congruent with the now of now. Even though 1900 years plus have passed. Was there's there something in his language that leads you to believe he knew that we would be reading this now? Not that he knew it, but that what he says about the now then applies for the now now. Because we live in a similar circumstance today that he lived in then. I mean, we may not encounter the kind of opposition and oppression that Paul was encountering from the Roman authorities, let us say. But, we, but there are people in the world today who do encounter for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. A good example of this is in India, who do encounter, and in Indonesia, who do encounter... And in China, who do encounter the, the kind of opposition from the prevailing temporal governing authorities that the Christian church was encountering from the Roman government at the time that Paul was writing this. And there is a degree to which, I mean, we used to talk about Christendom. Christianity is the prevailing social ethos of the West. I'm not sure that was ever really true. I mean, we're looking back at the past through, through rose-colored glasses and saying, oh, how much better it was back then. But if you read what they wrote back then, they used to talk, decry and talk about the horrible sins of their present age, how it can't get any worse, and how much better it was 100 years earlier than them. So I'm not sure there ever really was a period of time in which Christendom, the, 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 the morality and faith of Christianity, reigned supreme. I, I doubt that seriously. But, uh, excuse me, and therefore I would say that we exist in a, in a, in a state of flux and, and disagreement and conflict against our prevailing culture. If we are true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it calls us to do and who it calls us to be, then we are going to be in opposition to a culture that teaches greed and, and self-aggrandizement and 
racism and sexism and every other kind of division that you can think of. And all the sin that it talks about, the destructive, horrible, life-destroying sin that we, that we see in society. And so we see the church has continually been, if it's true to who and what it is and what it's been called to be, if, if it has truly become the children of God and the body of Christ, then it's going to be in opposition. And, and if you find a church that isn't struggling against the prevailing society, that isn't struggling and receiving oppression and opposition, then there's something wrong with that church. Because it's not being true to the gospel, which is causing it to be opposed by the prevailing society. Uh, tell us about the creation you think he's referring to again. Because um, it all hinges on that, it looks like. The whole of the universe, the whole of the universe, all of creation is anticipating with much anticipation the, the, the brain to fruition of the body of Christ here in this world, the, the establishment of the kingdom of God in its completion. We have a temporary, um, ephemeral um, embassies of the kingdom of God in the church. And the kingdom of God is yet to come in its fruition. And that's part of what he's talking about here. This idea that the, the, it, the, the revealing of the children of God in this world. The, the, the full establishment of the children of God in this world. Over and against the powers and forces of darkness. The establishment of the kingdom of God is kind of what he's talking about here. Although he doesn't use that language. Uh, and, the, and the creation itself which has been heavily impacted by the fall. By sin. By human Denial of the place and position that we've been given under the authority of God is struggling to and is looking for, personified here, looking forward to with great anticipation the, the, the righting of the wrong, the, 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 the correct reorientation of the entire universe with God. So, in a sense, to use Augustinian language, when Adam and Eve fell, the creation fell too. When Adam and Eve fell, the creation fell to pieces too. And just as humans sin, so creation in a sense suffers from the impacts. And we know creation suffers from the impacts of human sin. Just look at what we do in pollution and other stupid things like that. How we rape that which we've been given. The garden we've been given to maintain. So in part, creation is being personified here almost. No, not almost. It is being personified as awaiting with anticipation when these children of God are going to be fully revealed. Isn't his point here to kind of try to tamp down the groaning? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, he starts out by saying the sufferings. Yes, really got nothing to compare with what's going to happen. Yeah, and then he says, you know, uh, finishes off by saying, but if we hope for what we do. We wait for it with patience. Yeah. That we don't groan. Uh huh. We, we may be groaning, but we're not going to groan. We, we don't have to be afraid about what the end result will be amidst the oppression. It's going to come. Let's finish the paragraph. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until right now. But not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit. 
Uh, let, me, let me expound upon that a little bit. That's what I was talking about. The first fruits of the Spirit, the body of Christ and the world, is the foretaste of the total, total, total kingdom of God. The t- kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It is established within the church, within the body of Christ, and it is still to come in Christ's return. It is already present within the body of Christ, the group of believers today, but it is still yet to come in its establishment over all the world. So that is kind of the first fruits of the spirit that he's talking about here. And I like to use the terminology, the ambassadorial terminology, that the church is the embassy of Christ Jesus in this world. And when you're in the church, you're on the the soil of the kingdom of God. Not necessarily the building, but the people. And yet the whole world isn't that way. It's just within the kingdom of God that that's true. And we have the first fruits of the Spirit, which is the first fruits of that kingdom. We are the, the first harvest of the totality of the kingdom of God, which is what first fruits means. We groan inwardly while we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It's not just a spiritual event. It's going to be a total physical event. For in hope, Elpis, remember we went through this sequence. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the struggling, the fighting, the, the, the oppression that we experience is nothing compared to the glory that we're going to receive. Therefore, even though creation is groaning in anticipation of it, we should be hopeful. We should practice elpis in knowing that it's going to be brought to fruition within us. I like the way this has the end of verse 25 as opposed to the word patience. It says... Um, with endurance we are ardently waiting it. Repeat that. With endurance are we ardently awaiting it. Hmm. Okay. And when I hear patience I think maybe because of our changing of the word of the meaning to the day that we're in, it's not really an active, aggressive or it's more of a, uh, a passive, well we're just patiently waiting, we'll just wait for it. As opposed to actively and earnestly looking forward to it in anticipation. And that's the essence of the meaning of the word. Patiently waiting is not a passive conception. It's an active one. Just as faith, faithing, active belief. But in today's society, don't you agree? Patience patience generally is is generally looked at as a passive action. But it's not. What is the word he uses? He uses the basic word for patience in Greek, but it's in the active form. It's the active indicative. We've changed the meaning over time. The conception of patience has shifted. We do not in English have a very good understanding of what it means to be actively patient. <laughs> to us, patience is sitting back and waiting. No, no patience. <laughs> we have equated patience to waiting. And we say it's, it's, accept, it's, it's resigned to waiting. I'm going to be patient and wait for it. Whereas a Greek understanding of patience is to be actively waiting for it. Participa- this is the problem. Participating in 
Its production is patience. Being patient means you are actively waiting for it in the Greek conception. Participating in its bringing about. We are called, this is where Christians get in trouble, and we see it in our culture today. The concept of the kingdom of God is something that Christ Jesus brings. Okay, yes. Christ Jesus, in his return, brings in the kingdom of God. But equally true and parallel to that statement, is the statement, we are to be patiently waiting for the kingdom of God and participating in its fruition. We are part of the kingdom of God here, and part of being patient and waiting its coming is being active in its production here and now, being part of the kingdom of God, proclaiming the message, being the kingdom of God, i.e. reaching out to the last, the least, and the lost. So that makes good sense if I'm our kids, we've been talking a lot about the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, and part of that is thy kingdom come, uh-huh. as though we need to actively pray for it. It's not going to just happen on its own. We have a role to play. We have a role to play in the coming kingdom of God. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that our attitude should be one of that which God has established in eternity we are prayerfully to be participate in its production here on earth. When we talk about the church being the kingdom of God on earth, being a foretaste of the total kingdom of God on earth, an embassy of it, that means that we have a role to play as ambassadors. Ambassadors just don't sit back on their laurels and do nothing. They're busy representing the nation that sent them to the nation that they're in. We're called to be representing Christ to this world. And all of that means. When, and that's kind of what's being articulated here. When, when we read these couple of verses last week, Elise and I in the car on the way home were linking back to Hebrews. I think you know we've been doing some study in Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, I, I can paraphrase it, but it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Correct. And... It's interesting, verse 24, he says, we're saved by hope, which seems odd to me. So maybe you can elaborate on that, because it seems like I would have expected him to say, for we are saved by faith. Because faith is is what makes real or brings evidence to things hoped for. So give that definition from Hebrews again of faith. Faith is the evidence or substance. substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Stop. It is the substance of things hoped for. The word there in Hebrews is elpas, for hope. That's true in Paul everywhere. There's not a single incidence where it's not the case. Elpas is the common word. And it means not just wishy-washy hoping for. It's, it's true expectation. Faith is the substance of things expected. Might be a slightly better translation in the English. It, it pushes the envelope in terms of the assurance in. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, here in Romans, we have, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice the, the repetition of hope, 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 hope. Things hoped for and that which we hope for here. This is a description in verses 20, well, 
Yeah, 24 and following. 24 and 25 is a description of what faith looks like when it's in action. What pistuo looks like when it's functioning as an active verb. For in hope we were saved. Replace it with faith. For in faith we were saved. Now faith that is seen is not faith. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? For who faiths for what is seen? But if we faith faith for what we do not see, we wait for we wait for it with patience. Well, you wouldn't faith for something you already have. It doesn't it doesn't quite match up, but Elpis and Pistis, to use the noun form. Elpis and Pistis, hope and faith, the substances of both, are almost two sides of the same coin here. Without hope, you cannot have faith. Without faith, you cannot have hope. That's a true statement. And without hope, true Elpis, hope, it is impossible to exercise belief, i.e. have faith. You can have belief. You can have passive belief, right. but you can't right. exercise it and therefore have faith. Right. When, we were telling you, when we were in London, they were saying, they kept saying, you, know, you need to have active belief. Because you, and it does equate to what we would call right. faithing. You need exactly. to be You need to faith because belief in itself, you know. Not passive, that, active. That's yes, the key. It's an understanding of Christianity and what God has it's done. Insufficient. But if you don't take it and do anything with it and change your life and order your life and act on it, it's just belief. Mm-hmm. And this is what we have. This verses 24 and 25 reflect what you do when you have that active belief, when that belief is in action. You therefore have this hope. All right. So let me, so before we leave that, so sure. you're saying hope and faith are, I, I get the strong linkage. Mm-hmm. But if what he's saying here is there has to be hope first, um, and that becomes almost the object of the faith. And then when the two come together, you get substance. There's evidence of things not seen. It's faith the is the substance things of things hoped for. Hoped for. So, so if, you, if you didn't have the thing to hope for, you wouldn't faith. There's exactly. something to hope for. I have a salvation that I can hope for. Exactly. To hope for that. There, that's that's there. Okay. Then there's faith. And I'm, I'm probably being too sequential and logical. But hope, you're, you're, trying to create a vi- you're trying to create a flow chart. Yeah. And <laughs> essentially that's good. Because where the rubber meets the road is, is, is how to go about this. You start with hope. Part of what hope is, is not just this mental ascent, but the emotional ascent internally. Not just an emotional warm fuzzy, but a, a, a hanging of the very self in, in your id on what you're thinking and believing. That then generates the action, which is pistis, faith. All right? You said it perfectly well. So there's this close link. Hope is required in action. It becomes faith. And then faith, then, when it's, when it's in action, generates more hope. So it becomes synergistic and builds. 
That's why when you're in the faith, you're in the church, you're living by faith, you find it growing. It's, it's like when you exercise and work out at a gym and your muscles increase in strength and you're in, your, your endurance increases. You get stronger and stronger and stronger. You, it, it, in the faith, you gain more hope, you gain more faith. And we, we, there's substance then of more of God's kingdom yeah. and our own salvation and sanctification. The substance that is generated is that which we see right here where it talks about the first fruits. We become more of the first fruits. The more of that initial first harvest. The harvest is increased. The harvest of the first fruits of God and the kingdom of God are increased. Which then, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, generates more opposition from the society <laughs> and more reason then to hope and engage in faith action. In her notes, I think, is that last week? She's got hope. What you said was hope is the emotional content of faith. Yeah, that's correct. Which kind of pulls out. That's exactly where I was pulling. Right. And I think my name says we are saved by faith, not hope, but hope accompanies salvation. Hope accompanies salvation. That's one way to look at it. It's part of the assurance end that, that you have in faith as well. It's part of the confidence end of faith. If you think of faith, the ABC structure, it's an action based upon belief sustained by confidence. Hope is a component of the confidence end. But it's also a component of the action end. I want you to read your Living Bible Translation, beginning at verse 24. Okay. We are saved by trusting. <laughs> Wait, no, stop, stop. Now, verse 24, you right? Verse 24. Okay, is that 24. Chapter 8. Yes, read it. We are saved by trusting. And trusting means looking forward to getting something we don't yet have. <clears throat> For a man who already has something doesn't need to hope and trust that he will get it. But if we must keep trusting God for something that hasn't happened yet, it teaches us to wait patiently and confidently. That's that confidence. Now the very end of it I love, patiently and confidently. Well, the trust is going to have confidence. Yeah. So it's really, if you just substitute confidence for trust, you got there, it. Yeah, but trust is very similar. It's more trust is more accurate for faith. stronger. It trust, trust is one of the strongest words in English for faith that we've got. Because yeah. you, you have to act the active in order to be trusted. It seems to me trust, at least the sense of it, I mean, gives some sense to it. Otherwise, you know, the, just the sense by itself. If we hope for what we do not see, wait for it with patience. It's, it's like because we don't see it we wait however we're, we wait. We wait. keep waiting. You know, that doesn't, but doesn't we, make any sense. But we wait actively. We, we go ahead and participate in that for which we wait. In hope we were saved. Translated, that translates that with trust. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes 
for what is seen. I mean, if, if you got it. Because what's seen would be evidence. What you would see would be evidence which would lead you into hope. And evidence has never been. Could be. Or you might be hoping that it continues too, and he's not giving any credit for that because he thought Jesus was coming on Tuesday. That's what I was going to ask you. This almost looks like it's written again for, well, if I think Jesus is coming Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. I can handle this. In part, it does depend upon a preeminent expectation or imminent expectation for the return of Christ. That's true. Soon. But if you hope for, you wouldn't hope for a cake to appear if we have a cake right in front of us, because then there's, why would you hope for a cake if there's one Here. there? Maybe you would. Would hope you hope for a cake that was, you know, down in the store? That you, I mean, that. that would I mean, if we didn't be... have a cake here, you'd hope if you were hungry and wanted here's, a cake. Here's how it would work. Before they got here, I had no idea they were bringing a cake. I actually did not hope they were going to bring a cake. <laughs> <laughs> but I. But if I had, I would have hoped that they were bringing a cake. I didn't know no, they were. Right. I didn't see it. And but I was, still had hope for it. Once I saw it... We hoped that it tasted good. We hoped that it tasted oh, good. Yeah. Wait, I hoped yeah. that it was real and not just yeah. a piece of plastic. And we hoped that it tasted good. But once we cut it and we tasted it, we're still not hoping that it's going to taste good because now we have the evidence that it does. So now yeah, we're moving on to the next one. Evidence. Like, will we have a cake next week? Evidence. <laughs> Yeah. Throwing in evidence. The evidence has never been covered in Hebrews. The second half of the definition in Hebrews. Yeah, I brought it up because I jumped into Hebrews and quoted Hebrews. The substance, there substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. When hope comes to fruition, <laughs> the evidence of things. Seem like you'd have to see evidence. The evidence well, of things is. not seen. No, that's faith. no, but in Hebrews it's in the context saying faith is required to take something that was hoped for, that God had said, and I'm latching onto something God promised, and my active of so my faithing or our faithing helps bring evidence of God's word coming true. That's true. Something I hoped for, which something God said that I want to be true here now, something of of His kingdom, our faithing. Helps make it real here. It participates so that's where, that's in making it, it becomes, real. Yeah, that's where it becomes the evidence part of something that was hoped for, then was made made real. The made, evidence made that this is part. a good cake is the fact that when we <laughs> ate it, we didn't spit it out. <laughs> that is a good cake. It's a very good cake. <laughs> it's a very rich cake. I mean. and, then, and then, just like you said, so then if if you. By then seeing something that was hoped for, that then there's evidence to say it came true, that then gives you more confidence that, hey, I can fade again. I mean, because once you see that evidence and see how God has carried out his word, because this whole book is a record of faders and bringing into evidence things that were hoped for. We have things to hope for, too, so we have a role to play. That whole book is more, if you went by percentages, is more evidence of people that didn't fade and didn't believe and weren't strong and God sure. helped them out and Jesus helped them out anyone. I mean that's a mistake after mistake. Look at the disciples. The Hebrew crying people. Out loud. Look at Peter. <laughs> Constantly <laughs> failing to do what God said and God but was still patient with them. It's like a little boy um, you've heard this too before standing on the side of a pool 
and who wants to jump in, and his father stands there with his arms, and he hopes that his dad's going to catch him. And so maybe tentatively, you know, he's standing on the side, and the father says, you know, come jump to me. He's inches forward, and finally he tentatively jumps off, and the father catches him. Well, now he's faith, because he actively believed that the father would catch him, and so he has more confidence. Next time he gets out of the water and does it again, and keeps doing it, and then he's just running. He's not even looking to see if no. the father's watching anymore because he has that much confidence. It's just it's built up over time. That's well, part of those faith muscles. I look at the world, I see trillions of people that have been ground into the dust while this Christianity floats along, and they weren't helped. Their lives were spent, wasted, and so forth. And here we are, 1900 years, 19. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, we still float along. If you wouldn't it not be hope if if everything had worked out wonderfully and we were already there, you wouldn't have any hope because it's there. You see, your hope would be that it this continues. Is, this is supposedly the promise here, right? I think it's a book over written those, called over the those two thousand years. If you say that you know they're just dust in the ground, we have nothing to show for it. I think right in front of us is something that we actually do have to show that their efforts produce just the compilation of all of these works in one place that we can now read as opposed to way back when it all began, there was nothing even available. One of the, one well, of the We have a book to read, great. There's, there's what do they say, 30,000 infants dying daily. And so after a while, I, I just look at the Bible and say, well, I'm not sure it's really saying anything. I'm not sure it's not just Jewish expectations that have been worked on and worked on and worked on. That's why I've said evidence. There's no evidence. Everything we believe in is behind the cloud. We can't prove it. None of it. That's why it's called faith and not certainty. Well, that's a psychological <laughs> thing. You can get primed up on a lot of different psychological things. Well, I, view, I, I view the fact that we're meeting here is evidence. The fact that there is the church. The church went started from a, a small band of people following Jesus around to the worldwide church as we know it. That's evidence. I mean, the fact that we're meeting here having this conversation is evidence. Of what? Um, so it's, it's, it's more than it, evidence of a down payment of God's kingdom. The it, you know the church being part of the body of Christ or the body of Christ and the church being one and the same kind of in this church time that that's that substance to me. Lee, if you weren't questioning it, if you were just kind of rolling along like the other trillions of people, then you'd have a, a very good argument for no faith in this thing just being a book. You're questioning it. You're questioning. And that's, to me, really just what I like about this, because that's a good thing. Yeah. For somebody to get here and, and give us all of everything they learned in their doctorate and all their PhD-isms and, and, and the theology, that's wonderful. But that's meaningless if we don't, if that's all we do is accept that and don't think about it. No, Sorry. I don't want you to accept it. No, I want you, you don't. to think about it. That's my point. This is the evidence. This is the evidence. This is, you know, this is really why we're here to talk and talk and talk. This well, it seems to me you're looking you're looking for something <clears throat> that you can see. That's right. The uh, and and at least this says that's not hope. That's not faith. That's not you faith. Know. Faith is something that you can't see. Even in, in the fact that the uh, 
jury is out on whether the Christian church has really lived up to its expectations, you know, may not change, you know, how you feel or you approach or you, or you think about it, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And that, get, to me, that gets closer to faith than oh. it's something I can't help, you know. I'm amazed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Something, something you can't well help. Put. There you go. Well put. I'm totally amazed. Every time I study church history, I'm totally amazed at how through human stupidity and failure to be true to what God calls us to do and be, nevertheless, God still works a, miracle, a literal miracle by continuing to, to grow and... Uh, don't misunderstand this. To grow the church, to to build the church, to expand the church, and I don't mean structures and institutions. I mean people. The body. To advance it. Exactly. If it were not for the faith of those wonderful people, even though they make mistakes, we make mistakes constantly as the church, and yet. We have faith in God, and we do the best we can with what with with the with the light that we have received. I go back through. I can read back through the history of the church over nineteen hundred plus years, and I'm amazed at when you read the history of the church councils, the human personalities and the horrible things that were done to fellow human beings over personality issues. And we base doctrine on that? Sometimes, yeah. They managed to, to, to knock out a, a doctrine that made at least a, a modicum of sense amidst a, a fight of personalities. They did it all the time. We fail as the people, as the body of Christ continually, and yet God still works with us. That's actually the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that here are all these people who failed to do and be the kind of thing and people that God wanted them to be, and God is still willing to work with them. That's the story of Peter, right there. When you're talking about saying, think about the disciples and the other people that saw Jesus. Yeah, and they didn't even recognize him when he was, the, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm coming back. Who's this guy? Yeah, the, denied, <laughs> denied Christ three times. Peter denied Christ three times. But he still been to church on him. <laughs> Yeah, and he eventually did come to faith. That To me, that's amazing. If God's willing to work through a bunch of failures like we have in the Bible, maybe God will work through us. <laughs> and, that's an and that's an expression of hope right there. Absolutely. The, the Bible you know, that we now have is a collection of works. Uh -huh. When you study it, and, and you, you study the Old Testament, I think it'll teach you, and especially if you take the time and the effort to learn the history and check it against secular history, it will give you, you'll come to the conclusion that it's God's a faithful God, and he, what he says, he actually does, despite the people. And then what we hope for is what's given to us in this Bible, that we hope that, our hope is that this life, people just dying, and having a purposeless life is not what Christianity is all about. 
Christianity says that we hope to be redeemed and live with God in heaven and that he's going to come back and create a new heaven and earth on this earth. And that's the hope that this Bible gives us. And we have the means to faith because we've studied the record of God's faithfulness and we've been convinced that there's, it's valid. And that validity convinces us to faith on the hope of what's coming for us, whether we receive it in this lifetime, whether we're mistreated or not. We have to look beyond the circumstance and look to what we've hoped for and make that a reality, if not what we see around us, but at least how we walk through it. Mm. How we live it, mm. exactly. There's a lot of uh, history in there, as Lee, that's probably what bothers you, bothers me, about people being slaughtered, both sides, in God's name with this wonderful, faithful God, slaughtering all these people, and some of them were just in the army. They would be as innocent as the, uh, you know, going into Iraq and trying to help them out in that regard, but there's slaughters on both sides, and he's historically talking about the whole way, and if you, if once I pick up on that, I realize that, yeah, good things happen to bad people. I always have. Absolutely. I always but, have. This but, Bible isn't going to change that. This Bible is not going to change that. But good things happen to bad people. That's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to change that either. <laughs> or bad It's catchy what you've got. Good things happen to bad people. They do. They them. absolutely <laughs> Sometimes more so. Yeah. Likewise. Well, I want those bonuses from AIG. Yeah. I want a bonus. Things happen to bad people. And now they're going to give it back. Yeah. Well, Maybe. Maybe. Ninety percent of it. <laughs> 162 million. 165 million. What's that? Yeah, but you know, I think that's the data. You know, all these bad things happening to good people. The good things it's even worse when the good things happen to bad people. <laughs> no, that just makes you jealous. I love that. I love that. <laughs> that was a great slip. I love that's better than mine. Yeah. Romans eight twenty six. I want to get a few verses done before we're done. You get back to the beginning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. In the midst of all of the struggle, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit living within us knows how to pray, and the Holy Spirit prays through us. That's what He's saying. With sighs too deep for words. It's almost a. It almost sounds like a statement of, of of immense emotional depression, but it's not. With sighs, exhalations, too deep for words. Yeah, you've got groans in yours. Mm-hmm. Groans. They use groans again. Groans is a possible rendering there. And God, who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So amidst the struggle, amidst this whole situation, when we have hope, when we exercise this hope and therefore have faith, when we do this, even though we do not always know how to pray, speak to God, commune with God, Nevertheless, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and intercedes for us, through us, in prayer. And God, who searches the heart, knows what the mind of 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Essentially, God prays through us to God. Interesting mental limits there. So is it saying that you don't have to have the right words to pray, but if you do it from your heart? Precisely. That's, that's what Open to the presence of the Spirit within you. You don't know what to pray. You don't know what words to use. There have been times when I have not known what words to use. Many times. And you just sort of let go of the need to have words. And sometimes God gives you words to open your mouth and they come out of nowhere. I don't know where they're coming from. Um, there's an element within Pentecostal Christianity which views this as a, one of the places where Paul speaks about praying in tongues. And the sighs too, sighs too deep for words are understood as praying in tongues where the Holy Spirit prays through the believer to God on behalf of the believer to God. And the believer doesn't know what they're praying, and they're praying in another language, a heavenly language. Uh, and that's, that is the, this is the scripture that they use to, to substantiate that. So this would be for your dad in the fishing boat that Yes. This is, where, this is where my dad pulls his and you, argument. Would you agree with that um, interpretation? I would say it's inclusive of the idea, but not exclusive. That the idea is, is if the Holy Spirit's going to wants to pray in tongues through you, I suppose the Holy Spirit can. I don't have a problem with that. But it's more than just that. It it has to do often with a silent type prayer. The silence prayer. When you don't know what to pray for, but you're in prayer. And so you shut up. Or you take a passage of scripture or a psalm or something and allow that to sort of form your prayer and then you be quiet and pray silently not vocalizing in your head but being quiet and oftentimes when you do that in prayer I, I discovered this is true it's one of, the, one of the disciplines I learned in the monastery when you start with a psalm and you've chanted it through with your brothers you, sometimes you do it several times let the words form in your brain and you fall into silence. And the, the discipline was to silence your mind completely. Don't vocalize in your mind, even. Be quiet up here as well as here. In your head as well as in your mouth. It's yoga. That's almost like yoga. And it, it's an ancient spiritual discipline of the church. It was practiced by the Desert Fathers in the 400s A.D., and by doing that, by silencing your mind, things would, would, would appear out of nowhere to me. I would get the answer to prayer, or I would know what to pray for, or I would know who to pray for, or how to pray for them. And then I could vocalize, at least internally in my mind, the words I need. But sometimes, even then, I wouldn't get that at all. I would get the words of a hymn or the words of another scripture or the, in my mind I would see somebody's face and so that attitude of prayer is kind of what's being spoken of here in that it's not me praying 
but the Holy Spirit within me. And that's kind of what he's speaking about here. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. I know, I'm happy you said that because that helps me. <coughs> because sometimes I just don't have the words sometimes to <clears throat> know what I want to pray for, but I know I want to pray for something. So. Uh -huh. yeah. And sometimes it's important when you know that yeah. to give yourself to it. And the hardest thing for me is to shut up. Yeah. But I feel like I fail if I, I just don't know what to, to pray for. That's, no, that's actually that's the yeah. success. According to yeah. verses 26 and 27, that's success. Yeah. You, you have re First of all, you've recognized that you don't know what to pray for. And you don't. As a, a member of this church... She's very uncomfortable praying in public before the congregation. She doesn't want to give the offertory prayer because it makes she loves to read the scripture, but she doesn't want to offer the offertory prayer. And I says, okay, you don't have to offer that. We'll get somebody else to offer the offertory prayer. No big deal. If you want to read scripture, that's great. We'll have you read the scripture. Um, lead the do everything else in literature, fine, but we'll get somebody else to do the offertory prayer, or I'll do it. If you're uncomfortable doing it. She says, but I just don't know what to say. And I said, oh, well, there you go. There. <laughs> you, that's the first step here is recognizing that in truth, prayer is not about what we say. That's the hard part. Prayer is not about what we say. It's about what God says to us and about what the Holy Spirit within us then says to God. In response, we think it's important what we say in prayer, but in point of fact, it's important what God says. So many people spend so much time formulating what they're going to say and then saying it there to God. There's people who are eloquent at prayer, and I can't do that, you know, and I kind of feel quite inadequate. <laughs> I was with a bunch of clergy uh, annual, before at last annual conference, and we were going out to eat, and so and so was asked to pray, and most of us got home. <laughs> because this guy prays long prayers and so he starts to pray and, and I mean we're <laughs> we gotta get back the bishop's gonna call us back to order and we haven't eaten yet and, and we just you know my goodness why did they ask him to pray because he, he, he loves to hear himself pray and when we, and then uh, so the next evening we got together and he happened to be there, and somebody said, don't ask Philip to pray. <laughs> and so they asked me to pray. Smart answer. Because I said, Almighty God, we thank you for the food, amen. <laughs> and everybody, you know, Averaging that was it? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. Amen. That's what you need to say. <laughs> now what God needs to say is another matter. So often we're ready to run off the mouth. And what this is telling me right here is we don't need to be running off the mouth. And in fact, when we don't know what to pray, that's the special time to then be quiet and let God pray through you. And the spiritual discipline for doing that is not easy for 
run-of-the-mill Protestants or even Roman Catholics to get their handle on. You start with a quiet hymn or a psalm that's sung. After you've gone through it a few times and allowed those words to form in your brain, you then move into silence, verbal silence. And then there are certain exercises that you do to bring the verbal, now the verbal silence is down, to bring the inner silence into your mind. Because the instant you stop speaking, your brain starts functioning more. <laughs> and so you focus in on something, either a candle or a stained glass window or an icon or something to, to, to get your mind to keep it from wandering to focus it. And once you've done that, then you can, once you get used to doing that, you can settle into that silence of the mind more quickly. And I have always been surprised at how temporality, the passage of time, is irrelevant in those situations. We would practice that discipline. I was always surprised at how much time had passed in which I wasn't thinking. I was quiet. I would have thought it would have been, you know, five minutes. Now, when you're first doing it, it seems like forever in five minutes. But eventually you get a flip. Mm -hmm. And that quiet peace can last a long time. And you don't really realize it. And it brings the... Uh, they tested this once. It brings our blood pressure down. It, it, it improves all sorts of, of features, in, in biochemical features in your body. And so, I mean, it, it, I wasn't nearly, didn't have nearly the appetite I normally had. I did, I, if I had a, I still do it to this day when I have a headache. I can, I can fall into the practice of trying to completely clear my mind of thoughts. And I go through the process. I just go through it again. And if I sit down for about, Paula has seen me doing it, sit down in the office for five minutes, close my eyes, and try to get myself into that state. And when I pull myself down into that state, the headache goes away quickly. And, and you know, it's, the problem is getting the time to do that. And this state, verses 26 and 27, is the true, is probably the most advantageous state of prayer that you can have. Because it's not you praying. It's the Holy Spirit praying. Who else do you want to pray for you? Yeah. <laughs> all, all these years wasted. <laughs> exactly. Where does Jesus, where in the Bible, other than uh, you know him giving the answer to the Pharisees or whomever about the Lord's Prayer, yeah. some of that and being added to, does, it talks about him going off to pray, Gethsemane and all Continually that. he's going off to pray. But it's not telling us what? He's praying. It's no. not telling words at all, is it? Usually, Ever. no. Even in even in even in the, the the series where he's in the garden, it says he often goes off to pray, but it doesn't tell us what he prays. In some cases, it tells us in others. You know, in John, we get a good insight into it, but in many cases, it doesn't tell us the details. And often in the Gospels, when Jesus goes off to pray, it doesn't tell us what he's praying. It just tells us that he is. Now. It's quite a different thing to, to listen to Philip pray these long, drawn-out, hairy-ass prayers. You're going to edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was Arian. Arian's prayer. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 
That's your hair was that's right. Hairy ass. <laughs> now he's got two edits. <laughs> ah, cool. Not at all. <laughs> those those types of prayers to me are 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 exemplify what Jesus said when he says that those who pray in public for the appreciation of those around them have already received the reward. Praying in public. For the accolades of those around them, that exemplifies it. You know, you're showing, you're you're praying to show off your erudition. No, that's why I don't normally pray long prayers. One of the complaints I had at, at my previous appointment was your pastoral prayers are too short. Oh, you'll never have that no, complaint. No. <laughs> you think like? <laughs> a pastoral prayer is to summarize that which has already been articulated in the congregation. And should be no longer than about a paragraph, if you write it out. And then simply, if necessary, reiterates a few few things that were said at most. God knows how great God is. You don't need to tell God how great God is. You don't need to tell God how horrible of a sinner you are, because God already knows mm-hmm. that too. But the, the, but the prayer that he at, uh, the Lord said that we should pray says... You know, ask for, or forgive us of our sins. There is a process As that you go through in prayer. Us. I would, I would say that that is our individual prayer. But for me to stand up in front of a congregation and give long area, I can do it. I've done it. Long area prayers in which I tell God how wonderful God is. Right. Nothing makes me more annoyed than to hear some preacher say. Father, we just want to thank you. Well, then thank him. Just don't say you just want to. Do it. You don't need the just want us. Yeah. And how many times do you have to call him Father? Can I ask a question? Kind of, it's along the lines of it, a little bit like tangent. One of the things that I've always kind of struggled with with praying to ask the Lord to forgive me for my sins, having already gone through the process of accepting Christ and I'm fading as a Christian, I have a desire to say thank you for forgiving me of my sins as opposed to asking you to do something which I feel he's already done. Is, is, is that a normal, or is that, is that something that I'm just misunderstanding the reason of why we're doing it? I'm, to me, to say, please forgive me for my sins, he's already done that. He's already done that in the fact that he's already paid for them on the cross. I think the referent is, forgive me of the sins that I've committed since I last prayed to you. You're acknowledging, aren't you, that you're a human being, Rather that you're sinning. Say, thanking him for thank, forgiving him. thank God for the sins that you have already been forgiven, yes. But if you've committed X sin since the last time you well, prayed, yeah, then I mean, forget. Yeah. <laughs> if you're human. Well, yeah, it's like accounting, owning up to what you've yeah, yes. you taken ownership. Even though he's already forgiven you on the cross mm-hmm. by dying for you, you have to accept it. And you do that by saying, forgive me. And to thank God for having done that, yeah, there's a place for that too. But you have to first ask for the forgiveness. But if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Yeah, you are. But you don't if you're, bounce in and out. If no, you're you don't bounce in and out each time you do it. But you still need to be cognizant of and recognize the need for forgiveness. Now your human side that you would probably have since since your last prayer. <laughs> The odds are with you. So beautiful prayer. Forgive me of the sins that I have committed that I have no idea I did. 
That's a scary prayer. I pray that often because I'm convinced that I have committed sins probably of omission that I had no idea I had just committed. And when they're brought up to me, you go, oh gosh, how could I fail that or not do that or not realize that? And, and then it hurts someone. So I'm, I'm continually praying that. And sometimes God will bring to my awareness of where it's happened. Let's get one more paragraph before we close because we started a little late. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. You want to just stop there? Yeah, maybe I need to. <laughs> now, one, let's read the paragraph. Hey, look, How if, can we read it and if, not talk we, about it? If we read 28 through 30, yeah. we can start there next time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Please. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a very large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise Calvin forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Calvin. Uh, you know what? That's going to take the entire next session. <laughs> this is where we're starting. Trust me. I'm not going back prior to verse 28. We'll start with that very first verse. And then we'll dive into what this business is about predestination. Foreknowledge and predestination. And I'll give you a little hint. According to Calvin, God's predestination of us is based on God's will. I decide that you and you are saved and you and you are going to hell. And nothing you can do about it. But not according to Paul. According to Paul, it's based on foreknowledge. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What? Uh, foreknowledge. Uh, so this is a form of F-O-R-E-K-N-E-W To know before That's right. yeah, Oddly enough, this one says Future Future perfect For proved For dash approved For approved No, it's not For approved Interesting Which puts a little more Calvinist yeah, that's more Calvinist. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's, that's how they're trying to say, save John Calvin on that one. The, the fact is, and this is basic Arminianism, that God's foreknowledge of us and our faith is how God then predestines us. Now, if you have a conception of time that does not involve linear characters, right. do that, that does not involve a linear flow, and it's all... T- punctiliar at all at one point then foreknowledge simply becomes knowledge God's knowledge of our faithing mm-hmm. is what destines us no pre, no pre in there and no four in there again. no pre and no four so it cannot be changed I mean, yeah. life on Mars 
Because God knows that we exercise faith, God therefore destines us to be conformed to the image of his son, or to say a little bit later, a little bit differently, God conforms us to the image of his son. If temporality is removed from the equation, and there is no linear process of time, then it's God knows that we're exercising faith and therefore conforms us, justifies us, and glorifies us, and there is no temporality for or pre or post. It all simply is. But human experience is that we live in linear time. Therefore, what this is saying is, before we exercised faith, God knew that we would, and therefore predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn within a large family. And then because God predestined us, he also calls us, and because he calls us, he also justifies us. And because he justifies us, he also glorifies us. I'm just reformulating the translation. But the idea is the predestination results in the entire process, but the predestination is predicated upon the foreknowledge of what we're going to do. Is he just talking about a small group of people here? <laughs> He's talking about every Christian who ever lived anywhere. And any believer throughout time and space, including people like Abraham. Yeah. Huh? Well, no, Lee. What he said yeah. was so that he would have a family. Within was, a large family. That's what I was thinking. Maybe it was for that period of time. The family of God is the community of all people who are God's children, who are believers in God. That's what he's talking about. Now, we'll come back and hit all of this again. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. That I am sure of. And I have lots of evidence, and you can have all the hope you want about that. Can we trust it, though? And yes, you can trust it. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.